Miss Ratchet, I'd like to ask you a question, please. Go ahead. This is from the 1975 film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It takes place in a mid-century mental institution. You know, and I've never been to a baseball game, and well, I think I'd like to see one. The staff isn't letting the patients watch the World Series. This infuriates Randall McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson. He starts acting up. The World Series. Raise your hand up, Jim. By the dawn's early. Just raise your hand up, McMurphy pretends to watch the game on the blank screen of the TV, calling out fake plays, getting the other patients riled up. Delivers. It's up the middle. It's a base hit. Richardson is rounding first. He's going for second. The ball's in the deep right center. Davidson over in the corner. Cut the ball off. Here comes the throw. Richardson rounding first. He goes into second. He slides. He's in there. He's safe. It's a double. He's in there. McMurphy causes trouble throughout the movie. In the end the staff find a way to permanently subdue him. A surgery, usually two incisions in the head, cutting through the bone and into the frontal lobe, severing it from the rest of the brain. They give him a lobotomy. Nicholson's character emerges from the surgery as a zombie, a shell of a human. This isn't the stuff of fiction. Lobotomies were performed in real mental hospitals, on real patients, regularly. One state in particular had an especially robust program, West Virginia. They wanted to perform lobotomies quickly, cheaply, and on a massive scale. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. In mid-July of 1952, 70 years ago this week, health officials in West Virginia carried out a mass lobotomy project. Over the course of a few weeks, hundreds of patients were lobotomized. In this episode, we'll meet the patients who went under the knife, the man who treated them, and how the lobotomy was pushed into the American mainstream. If you're eating right now, I am so sorry. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This is a 1956 documentary called Crisis in West Virginia. The State Board of Control was looking to draw attention to the awful conditions of their mental hospitals. So they produced this report. In it, they tour one facility called, and I'm just going to read out the name of this place as it's written, Lakin State Hospital for the Colored Insane. It's the 1950s. Eloquent evidence is here of overcrowding, the shocking necessity for housing these pitiful retarded boys with adult mental patients. For patients suffering from physical ill... The hospital's brick walls are crumbling. 
patients are shuffling around the hallways. Some are lying on the floor. In addition to their clouded mental condition, there's only this one tiny room to house the bedridden. Even mattresses are at a premium in some areas. The state's mentally ill patients look forgotten, warehoused in this hospital. People suffering from psychosis and mental illness. A catatonic patient, completely withdrawn, oblivious to the visitors, huddles mute before this broken section of ward wall. This was an age just before antipsychotic drugs were widely available in America. And without many treatment options, patients couldn't be discharged. Hospitals were beyond capacity. The beds were full. They need something to empty the beds. This is Jack Elhai. He's a medical writer and author of the book, The Lobotomist. He says there was a shortage of psychiatric beds across the country. So in 1952, West Virginia's state hospital superintendents brought in the services of a one Dr. Walter Freeman. Freeman was a famous lobotomist and an evangelist for the procedure. He was often in the press. He was this incredible extrovert who liked to show off. So there's one thing you need to know about Freeman. He wasn't a surgeon. He was a neurologist and a pathologist, the kind of doctors that do autopsies. Earlier in his career, beginning in the 1920s, Freeman worked at a huge mental institution. Freeman in particular uh, didn't like what was happening. He considered it uh, what he called a waste of human potential for all of these people to be permanently living in psychiatric hospitals. Freeman saw that many only left through the morgue. And so he set off to find a way to get people out. Not to cure them necessarily, but to get them out. That's when Freeman got turned on to the lobotomy. In the 1930s, scientists around the world were experimenting with different kinds of psychosurgeries. One early type of lobotomy involved drilling into the patient's forehead to access their frontal lobe. The thinking was this. They'd sever connections between the frontal lobe and the rest of the brain. That disrupted the part of the brain that regulates decision-making, impulse control, and the way you express emotions. Andrew Skull is a sociology professor at the University of California, San Diego, and author of the book, Dangerous Remedies. It's clear that lobotomy changed people's mentality. It didn't always degrade people's intellect. So when you gave them IQ tests, it didn't, didn't look as though you smashed that portion. But what it did do, undoubtedly, The frontal lobes are very important for planning, for initiative, for long-term perspective, for part of our essential humanity. Doctors found that some patients emerged calm, but emotionally numb. They used lobotomies on patients with symptoms of schizophrenia, depression, and extreme anxiety. The operation could be tricky. Doctors had to be careful. If you cut too much, you produced a human vegetable. If you cut too little, the, the person remained psychotic. And the test they devised was that under the operation, they would talk people through it. And when the patient became confused, 
That was the moment when they stopped operating. Oh my God. Okay, just putting this out there, if anyone finds themselves doing active brain surgery on me, just know I probably won't be feeling very chatty. Anyways, Freeman practiced lobotomies on cadavers until he got the hang of it. And then in 1936, he and his partner, a neurosurgeon, took on their first live patient, a housewife with agitated depression. After her lobotomy, his patient was able to resume normal activities like reading, sleeping, and eating. She stopped having nervous breakdowns and she returned to doing housework. So in Freeman's eyes, success. Freeman, the showman that he was, started inviting reporters to watch his surgeries. All their medical writers described this as a great breakthrough. The Houston paper said it was as easy as removing an infected tooth and as trivial an operation as that. The Saturday Evening Post wrote that Freeman's lobotomy changed how patients saw the world. The world that once seemed the abode of misery, cruelty, and hate is now radiant with sunshine and kindness to them. With all the press, demand for the lobotomy grew. It wasn't just for the institutionalized. It's important to realize that this was widely endorsed. It was not some fringe intervention. Most leading lights in universities like Harvard and Columbia and Yale and the University of Pennsylvania and Duke fully endorsed this operation and had active lobotomy programs. People were being told this was a medical miracle. And a miracle is exactly what West Virginia needed. Freeman felt like lobotomies could solve their hospital's overcrowding problem, empty some beds. Writer Jack Elhai says Freeman was up for the challenge. He was a cowboy. He just rode in and did what he thought would work without much thought much consideration of what could go wrong. And I think he also believed that if something went wrong, well, the patient wouldn't be that much worse off than they had already been. Freeman suggested a newer technique designed for speed and scale called the transorbital lobotomy. It was easier than the prefrontal lobotomy because you didn't have to drill into the skull. Instead, he got to the brain through the eyes. Well, sort of. Not through the eye, but the opening in the skull that the eye sits in. And by placing a tool similar to an ice pick underneath the eyelid of the patient and into the eye orbit. And into the brain. It got the nickname the ice pick lobotomy. He thought it was just what West Virginia needed. It took just 10 minutes to perform. It could be done quickly. It could be done in the psychiatric hospitals. And some patients exhibited a reduction of their symptoms enough so that they could be discharged quickly. Freeman performed these ice pick lobotomies one after the other, more than 20 in one day. It was almost like an assembly line. Freeman's own daughter dubbed him the Henry Ford of lobotomy. Freeman thought that lobotomies could be done anywhere, like in a motel room, that you didn't even need to be a doctor. 
he believed that a bartender could learn to do it. Anyone could. Operation Ice Pick took place over the course of a few weeks. By the end of it, Freeman lobotomized more than 200 people in West Virginia. The results were announced in national newspapers and enshrined in prestigious medical journals like JAMA. In the journal, Freeman reported that many returned to their lives out in the community. Others stayed institutionalized. Four died during the operation or soon after. Two of them because of hemorrhaging. But to Freeman and to the administrators, the results were encouraging enough so that after the summer of 1952, over the next few years, Freeman performed an additional several hundred lobotomies in West Virginia. And hospital leaders showcased patients they saw as a success. Clinically, there's been a marked improvement in the condition of this patient. We'll hear from one of these patients after the break. Welcome back. Before the break, Dr. Walter Freeman wrapped up Operation Ice Pick in the summer of 1952. State officials were pleased with the results, so much so that they invited him to perform hundreds more in the years that followed. In that documentary, Crisis in West Virginia, we meet some lobotomy patients, like one man named Bernard. Bernard is now 26 years old, and he has been in, in the hospital for about six years. He has had the electroshock therapy and also a lobotomy. The staff seemed to think he had improved. Now he will cooperate over a span of a few minutes when asked to do something by the attendants. But then he will return immediately to his posture. Bernard is shown on camera. He looks at the floor and struggles to answer a couple of questions, gives a mumbling response. You told me the other day that you, you would like to go home. What about it? What would you like to do when you go home? I would read comic magazine. Still, the film refers to Bernard's prognosis as a ray of hope. Andrew Skull, the professor, says it's not surprising patients like Bernard were seen as a success, at least in the eyes of the state. Lobotomy was quite transparently used in those settings uh, as a means of social control, just just to render uh, patients passive, uh, and that counted as a success. Andrew says the procedure was arguably never about the patients. It was more about the needs of mental hospital staff. Lobotomies made patients less prone to belligerent outbursts. In short, easier for the state to manage. And one other thing about the patients, there was a major gender discrepancy. What's significant is that women were in a major way disproportionately the victims of this operation. So who were these women? 
To find out, we dug into records from Spencer State Hospital in West Virginia. They're from the early 50s, covering several of Freeman's visits to the hospital. We found 72% of lobotomy patients in these records were women. Schizophrenia was the most common diagnosis. Almost all of them were housewives. But there's also a 59-year-old music teacher, a 22-year-old nurse. There's an 18-year-old high school student. Another woman, 54 years old, never made it past second grade. Andrew says women were seen as ideal patients because their intellect was seen as less useful. It was thought that men who needed to compete in the public world, who needed to hold down jobs, obviously their brains were more valuable and more important than women who could return to the role of a housewife, uh, something that was looked down on and seen as a very simple task. The records don't have information about how the women did after Freeman operated. Across the country, Freeman lobotomized more than 3,400 patients. Patients were sent home, and their families were given instructions on how to care for their newly lobotomized loved one. Freeman once compared them to, they, they were almost like household pets. And he said, you know, if the lobotomy person starts acting out, give them a good smack like a small child, just disciplined like that. And they won't, they won't mind so much because they're no longer ashamed in the way they would have been before the operation. Outcomes of lobotomies varied. There were those that could get on with housework or other jobs. Then there were those who became severely disabled. Some returned home lost and childlike. Families described their loved ones as lacking any feelings. Some said it was like they lost their souls. Eventually, lobotomies fell out of favor. Some 50,000 had been performed by the early 50s. But those doctors eventually retired, and a new crop of doctors emerged. They saw lobotomies as archaic. Plus, by the mid-50s, new treatments were being developed. A drug called Thorazine came to the market in 1954. The antipsychotic was characterized by some as a chemical lobotomy and marketed a wonder drug. Antidepressants soon followed. In the lobotomy's waning years, Freeman fought to remain relevant. It's pretty clear when reading his personal letters. They came across a letter from Walter Freeman saying, why have we given up lobotomy? Lobotomy is such a great procedure. This is Dr. Michal Raz, physician and professor of history and health policy at the University of Rochester. She found the letter while she was searching for a dissertation topic, combing through medical journals in a library. And she was shocked by the claims Freeman made. We have all these patients who are so grateful and go back to do their work. I have a violinist who went back to playing a violin. You know, why are we giving up lobotomy so easily? This is a letter from the 70s. And I was like, whoa, this guy must be lying. She couldn't believe it. There's no way lobotomies actually worked, right? It inspired her to go looking for more. So she went digging in Freeman's archives at George Washington University and found letters from patients, messages they had sent him after treatment, Christmas cards they had exchanged, 
Freeman was obsessed with keeping in touch. Some letters thanked Freeman for bringing their loved one home from the mental hospital. One woman even wrote him begging for another operation. She was like, when are you going to perform that third lobotomy? And that, you know, she's like a prisoner of her own anxiety waiting for this lobotomy. But prisoners know how long they have to serve. But poor me, for me, it's worse than a prisoner because you're not telling me when you're going to do this third lobotomy to make me feel better. Now, to be fair, this is Freeman's collection. Patients with the worst outcomes probably weren't writing. When we first started working on this story, I was prepared to see Freeman as reckless. But talking to Michal complicated his legacy for me. For some of his patients, he did offer some semblance of relief when relief was in short supply. And I think both can be true, right? He was certainly dedicated to his patients. He was very narrow-minded in his approach. He, he didn't consider evidence that maybe what he was doing wasn't that helpful or possibly harmful. But he was very kind of like a hammer and nail kind of guy, only looking at... And every patient in his mind needed a lobotomy. Now, you know, when thinking about uh, mental health care now and sort of the progress that we've made since, you know, lobotomies have sort of fallen out of fashion, let's say, how, how far, I guess, do you feel like we've come? If you tell your story of, look, look at these crazy doctors doing crazy things, then it sounds like a one-off story that is never going to happen again. And look at us. Thankfully, our medicine is so much better. Mikal says, don't fall into that trap. That just because we know more, we're getting it right. In some ways, we've made progress, and in others, we're still struggling with this issue. But there's a lot that we still don't know and haven't really elucidated. It's difficult to stomach these lobotomy stories, patients emerging as shells of their former selves. And yet, I really do think it would be misguided to villainize Freeman. Mikal says he's a product of his time, just as we are a product of ours. I'm sure we'll look back on our own current treatment of mental illness as arcane, barbaric. How did they ever think that was okay? We're still trying to get this right. How to better care for each other. We've come a long way since the lobotomy heydays, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook. We still have plenty far to go. Not Past It is a Spotify original, produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Mary Rose Madden. Next week, we'll hear the story of the first IVF birth, or what they used to call a test tube baby. I didn't fully understand the intensity of the IVF process. I knew it was going to be intense. I didn't know how intense. And I think if I had known just how intense it was going to be, I don't know if I would have actually been ready for it. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. Lord Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Annie Gilbertson and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee and Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co., 
with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to the West Virginia State Archives, the George Washington Archives, and the Periodicals Department staff at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, rate us five stars. Come on, don't be shy. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. And he loved shocking and stunning audiences in this way. So so much so that his medical school classes were considered a good date, just so they could see what was happening in the classroom.